This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Bilingualism and multilingualism are fast becoming a norm globally, and young people are using their eclectic area of linguistic resources to create parody, play, contest, endorse, evaluate, challenge, tease, bargain, and otherwise negotiate their social worlds. We'll talk about bilingualism today in The Breakfast Show. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. It's a little bit of a late start. Actually, it's an hour late start uh, because I'm here in Taipei and I did not realize that you have just moved to a different time zone. So it's 10 a.m. in the UK, um, where I'm hoping some of the audiences uh, are from. And I am here in Taipei starting at my regular time, not realizing that things have changed on your end. So, um, so yeah, I'm sorry about that, uh, if I kept you waiting. Uh, but we are here now, and we can have our full hour and a half. We are going to talk about bilingualism today and also multilingualism, but because, um, you know, that kind of ties in with that. Uh, we have two amazing guests who have a lot of experience. If you have any questions or if you want to share your experiences, just type in the chat. Or you can also find me on Twitter as Miss Hiranandani. That's Miss Hiranandani. So welcome, welcome again to the breakfast show. And um, how's the weather where you are? Uh, as is the tradition for my Sunday breakfast show. We always start with the weather, and here in Taipei, the rain has resumed. It's been pretty rainy and cold. It seemed like spring was here, but um, it's pretty cold, and I'm going for a really, uh, a really exciting four-day-long hiking trip. And when I checked the weather yesterday, it's going to be rainy, and it's going to be cold in the negative, and uh, it's above 3,000 meters, so it's, we'll see what happens. We had plans to camp, which we have canceled. We did have, have some bookings in a lodge, so we're going to stay in our lodge. They have hot, running hot water there. Um, they have um, any kind of emergency equipment, so, and it's the highest, uh, highest residence in Taiwan, highest accommodation, but I also believe it's one of the highest accommodations in the world uh, where you have running water and all the services. So yeah, it's around 3000 meters uh, or a little bit about that. So yeah, that's that spring break for me. Uh, I don't know if you're on spring break. I hope you're enjoying it. I hope the weather is good wherever you are. And we have our first guest here. Hi, Eowyn. Hi, Jaya. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you not hear me? 
Yeah, um, I am trying out some different ones today, but yeah, we've had a bit of a tech issue. Um, our tech issue was mainly a time issue, but I'm so glad you're here and I'm so glad that you can stay for an hour. Um, and so I'll just start with a bit of an introduction, Erwin, and then we'll get started with our uh, with our chat that I'm really, really looking forward to. Okay. 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 Sure. Sorry. thought I lost you for a minute. <laughs> All right. So Eowyn, Chris Field, if um, you are not aware, if you're working in the field of international schooling, or if you are part of a bilingual school like me, you must have heard the name Eowyn. Um, Eowyn has worked with my school where I work at uh, for for a good number of years now. Uh, my school has a few different sections and Erwin worked with our section last year. Uh, she has been working in the field of languages and education for over 30 years um, and also with international schools for the same amount of time. Erwin is a certified primary and secondary teacher in ESL and EFL fields. And she has graduate level specialization in bilingualism, bilingual education, sociolinguistics, and teacher training. Erwin has worked as a specialist teacher, curriculum coordinator, language department coordinator, academic development officer, and as a lecturer in undergraduate English teacher training programs. Uh, she provides broad spectrum services to schools from languages, languages audits to curriculum development and pedagogical guidance. Um, Elwin combines research and practice with current projects with on language, integrated teaching, translanguaging, and linguistic, linguistic landscaping. She also combines her consulting work with a role as senior lecturer at Oxford Brookes University um, on the MAT SOL and PG Certificate Teaching Multilingual Learners Program. Finally, Erwin is also the author of the recent book, Bilingual Families, A Practical Language Planning Guide, which was just uh, published last year. And she's also the co-author of Linguistic and Cultural Innovation, Innovation in Schools, the Languages Challenge, which was published in 2018. Uh, she also runs, publishes uh, uh, two blogs. Uh, one is for teachers and one is for parents. Um, Eowyn is a CIS affiliated consultant and a member of the NALDIC Executive Board, which is the UK's EAL a Subject Association. Wow, that was quite an introduction, Erwin. I already have so many questions about all the things you do. Thank you. It does make me feel very, very old, actually, to hear all of those read out. I've been doing this for a very long time. Yeah, isn't that true? Um, when I look at my students from... Um, um, from uh, you know my first classes and they're so big they're in college and I feel like such an old person when I see that <laughs> yeah I, don't even like so, to think about that. <laughs> I know <laughs> 
All right. So, Elvin, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, let's unpack some of the terms that we, that I just mentioned about your bio. So uh, what is the field of sociolinguistics and what is translanguaging? So sociolinguistics is a field that combines sociology and linguistics, as you would get from the name. And essentially, it looks at languages in interaction and in contact in societies. And so it's quite broad. We look at things like societal bilingualism, uh, like in Norway, where you have a high status and a low status variety, or an everyday and a kind of a uh, professional variety. We look at the transmission of languages across uh, kind of across borders from dialect to language. It looks at how we structure our language programs in schools and, and you know, what languages we give status to and what languages we don't. Um, it's, you know, it's really broad, but it's just a very exciting field because it looks at how humans think about, use and interact with languages as first, second and additional languages. And so I'm sure the research in uh, social linguistics forms a lot of forms the base of a lot of your work. How far do you think it gets into, uh, you know, the the curriculum making pro uh, process? So I think so that we see the impact of sociolinguistic issues in education, but I think that we don't very often see consideration of sociolinguistic issues in, in education. I mean, education is so deeply linked to language that when we, for example, start a bilingual program, the issue of language status underlies what, what languages we choose, whether we're um, paying attention to that factor or not in the discussions around should we have a bilingual program, what languages should we use, everybody has a perspective on the value of different languages. Um, and so we definitely see that. We see it in the impact on what languages are taught in secondary schools. So I live in the UK right now. The most common uh, taught languages in secondary school are still French and Spanish and German. Um, and so there's still a kind of a buy-in to the idea of high status European languages being the most, um, the most uh, appropriate for teaching and learning in school, despite the fact that there are community languages here in the UK with far more speakers. Um, so we could, you know, look at, for example, the teaching of Polish in secondary schools or the teaching of Portuguese or the teaching of Urdu, where the community spirit um, is more along with those languages. And in fact, in Australia, they do actually schools teach as a second language, the most spoken languages in their community. So if you live in a community with a lot of Indonesian um, families, you will learn Indonesian at school. And so we see the, the impact of sociolinguistics a lot in education, but we don't necessarily see recognition of those issues in our discourse around language teaching and learning. Yeah, and I also feel like it feeds, you know, these two things feed each other. So a lot of time parents also attach a higher status to the, the more prevalent European languages that you mentioned, like Spanish and French and, um, uh, and so on. So, uh, yeah, I think, uh, so, so do you think there is a need for parents or the community to also be influenced or to get to know about this research? Because I know as educators, we don't access these, 
you know, this research and a lot of schools just cater to an inter I'm talking about international schools. And I know we were chatting yesterday on Zoom and we, we mentioned that. So a lot of um, international schools also just, you know, go with what they, the parents say. Absolutely. I think there's, um, sorry, I'm hearing an echo. I'm not sure if that's on your side. Sorry. There's, um, it's one of the biggest challenges in international education that parents have very high aspirations for their children. And those aspirations in terms of how they connect to languages are almost always about learning more high status European languages. And very often parents are quite happy to sacrifice their own language in the quest for English or French or even, you know, these days Mandarin is very popular. And so, you know, parents are thinking kind of about the long term market value, if you will, for their children of any particular language without thinking about the impact on a child's education that will will be felt on multiple levels if they make a language choice that doesn't make sense for their child's language profile. I think this is one of the biggest challenges in international education right now is helping parents understand the value of home languages as building blocks for cognitive and, and linguistic development and social development and identity development and how we can add in other languages without damaging that development in the uh, in the in the primary languages that the child has around them in their community from birth and their family. And so parent education is a, a, a huge factor that schools need to think more about as international education grows as a field and as bilingual um, education grows within the sector of international schooling. I think you're still on mute. Oh, sorry. I, what I was saying was, yes, that's so true. And it's very obvious if you work in the international school circuit, you see that uh, parent education definitely needs to be a part of it. Um, the other, other thing I think would be great to unpack is what is translanguaging? Well, there isn't a radio isn't show a radio long show. enough for me to unpack <laughs> that one. <laughs> let's, let's, let's just, yeah. you know because if you're going to use these terms uh, and yeah. i think we are i think it's it's good for me and the audience to know what what we're actually talking about so we'll just keep it short <laughs> okay so translanguaging is many things to many people but at its origin in the definition that it was given in the Welsh context in which it was defined is the planned and systematic alteration of two languages for teaching and learning in the same lesson. So that's a very pedagogical definition and it stems from work in Welsh medium schools where in particular they were challenged with resources. They didn't have enough Welsh resources. And they would, so they would, for example, have the students reading the history textbook in English and then talking about it in Welsh and writing about it in Welsh. And it's this use of both languages across that cycle of input and output in teaching and learning that seems to have beneficial effects on the language development of the children but also on the kind of the cognitive development and the academic development as well. And so that, you know, that concept was originally identified in the 1980s and early 1990s and researched in Wales. And then it kind of hit the global um, education media in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And at that point, it started to grow into 
quite a lot of far more um, almost neurolinguistic uh, and so, uh, social linguistic theories around how bilinguals and multilinguals use their languages and the, the the mental iterations of what those languages are. And so if you try to Google translanguaging right now and get a straightforward definition, you're going to find it very challenging. But in education, it simply means allowing, supporting, encouraging the use of languages together in the classroom for teaching and learning rather than enforcing a strict separation of languages so children are only allowed to work in the language that they're acquiring. And that makes sense. Um, in, uh, so uh, when I teach in a bilingual school and for example, sometimes uh, me and my co-teacher who teaches in French and I teach in English and we have our own classes, but sometimes we'll get together and we'll kind of, you know, introduce if you have, the, if we have the same topic, we'll be introducing the vocabulary, but, you know, then we'll, uh, we'll compare a little bit about, you know, how the word structure is. And uh, so is that also translanguaging when we are comparing or contrasting how two different languages work while we are co-teaching? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the kind, That's of, a, kind of what we call, um, you know, kind of serendipitous or spontaneous translanguaging, where we look at what the students are going to learn and we look at ways to scaffold by building across languages. So, you know, in your context, for example, which is English, French, bilingual, you will have students who will access those concepts and keywords more readily in English, and you'll have students who access them and understand them more readily in French. And so by bringing the two languages together, you ensure that all children understand the concepts and keywords and then transfer that knowledge to the other language. So the, you know, the classic example Jim Cummins always gives is if I know how to tell the time in English, you don't need to teach me to tell the time in French. You just need to teach me the words to explain the concept that I can already understand. And so it's that cross-linguistic support and the understanding that knowledge passes across languages with the scaffold of the, of the, word, the new words to, to talk about it. Yeah, and I think that's where um, mother tongue, the importance of mother tongue comes in. But before we delve into that, I'm going to introduce our other guest today who has a little bit of a different perspective and because he is, so I'm a teacher in a bilingual environment and Eowyn is the expert and the research researcher and the consultant. And uh, we have Sebastian Klerjolt here who is um, the head of primary um, in the French bilingual school in Taipei. Um, so a quick introduction, uh, Sebastian has worked for uh, 16 years in, uh, in the field of bilingual education. He has uh, headed schools in Singapore and Australia, and this is uh, his third year teaching, oh, sorry, leading the school, the primary school in Taipei. Hi, Sebastian. Hello, Jaya. How are you doing? You are you in Taipei? Yeah, we can hear you. I am good, thank you. I, I'm in Taipei. I'm up in the mountains in, in Yangmin Chan, so I hope you can hear me and that the connection is good. Yeah, there was a slight echo in the beginning, but now it sounds fine. So is it raining up there or how's the weather been today? No, no, no. The weather is perfect. I'm just, just enjoying the view of uh, the city of Taipei from where I am right now. <laughs> 
That's great. Um, so, Eowyn, do you also have spring break? Because I know uh, here in Taipei, we are on spring break for two weeks right now. Uh, we do not. We have one more week of school. Oh, okay. And then after that, you have a break? Um, I don't really get much of a break because I work with schools all over the world. And so <laughs> there's always some of my schools who are still not on spring break. <laughs> okay. So I get Easter well, weekend. Okay. All right. Um, so uh, since you're both here and now, uh, you know, we have already jumped into it. We have unpacked a lot of stuff. But I think the basic question is, um, and this is for you, Eowyn, uh, what is bilingual education? And are there different models, different forms? Because uh, I'm sure, you know, with different contexts and different, um, um, you know, areas, different places, there would be different ways that bilingual education works. So uh, uh, I think, Eowyn, you can go first, and Sebastian, then you can talk about a little bit about your experience with different kinds of uh, or different models of bilingual schooling that you have uh, uh, led or focused or worked with? So um, another big question, but lots of big questions today. The, at, it, at its core, bilingual education is education in which two languages are, are used to deliver the curriculum. So it's not that you teach in English and you teach French alongside, it's that you teach the content through English and through French. So at its most basic, it's when you teach the content through more than one language. Within that definition, there are infinite varieties and models you can use, but they're generally situated within kind of the most common models are kind of equal division of time. So 50% in English and 50% taught in French. Sometimes we have transitional models where you start with more of one. So for example, you start with 80% French and 20% English, and then you move to 70-30 and 60-40. And then by year four or five, you're doing 50-50. And then sometimes you reverse and transition the other way. Um, some models work on not percentage, but by subject. So they teach certain subjects in one and certain subjects in another. Um, it's really about knowing your context and knowing your students and knowing the goals of the program and then making the best fit for the children who will be in your program and the academic and linguistic goals you have for them. You're still on mute. I can't hear you, Jaya. Oh, sorry, uh, my mic was muted. Um, so I was going to I was going to say yes. I, I'm sure every place, every school, every bilingual environment has to adapt to its, um, uh, you know, students. And I'm curious, Sebastian. I know that you have definitely worked in Singapore, Australia, and Taiwan um, that I know of. So, what has your experience been um, in all different places? How 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 does it work? And what, in your experience, are some really good practices that you noticed worked in all the, at least these three different places that you were at. Yes, thank you, Jaya. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, thank you for your question. Uh, I take the the upload to to Ewin because we have a chance. We had the chance to know each other. Obviously, I know Jaya because we've been working together for the past two years now. So, it's good to hear you uh, uh, again. Elements about what is uh, bilingual yeah. education. So, thank you for being here today. Um, good to hear you too. Yeah, it's good to hear you here. So, uh, Jaya, you know, going back to your question, um, I think what's been, uh, for me, I, I think, you know, th this journey of, of uh, having a chance to lead uh, schools, students, and, and staff and communities in the field of bilingual education, I, I think, first of all, it really is a, a blessing to me because uh, I've always found such an environment, obviously complex, but extremely rich. Um, and and I think uh, that, that that's why bilingual education is complicated because it is complex and because of the richness, as Erwin said, uh, it really depends on uh, uh, who the students are, what the family's uh, expectations are, uh, what is the school vision uh, as a whole, and you have to sort of try and, and make the best out of all, 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 of, all of those uh, elements. Uh, and what I found also very interesting uh, through my experiences is that regardless of the school, uh, the fabric of a school is already uh, a very, uh, very complex. Uh, here, for instance, in, in Taipei, uh, the Taipei European School, the French section uh, where I work, uh, it's called French section. But interestingly, we have uh, many students who do not speak French at home. Uh, the main uh, uh, language spoken is Chinese, uh, but we also have uh, some students who only speak French. And uh, uh, and I think this sort of, of an environment where we don't have uh, a homogeneity in terms of students' profile is something that I've always been exposed to uh, when I was in Singapore, but also when I was in, in, in Australia. And I know that some schools' context might be a little bit different, uh, but uh, I think uh, that, that's what made it very special, uh, uh, very uh, complex, but also very rich. Um, and that's why it takes, I think, a lot of dedication on part of, of the staff as a whole to try and find the best way forward. Uh, you know, I think in terms of bilingual education, and, and as Ewin said, you know, a one-size-fits-all doesn't work in general but also within a school. So that's why some uh, uh, flexibility, uh, some adaptability, uh, good listening skills on behalf of the teachers and see who their students really are and being able to really uh, uh, understand what their needs are is, uh, is essential. Um, if I may add something about this, I think also one of the complexities that uh, there are some discrepancies in terms of the understanding of bilingual education, how it actually works based on best practices, based on uh, what some elements of research have, have shown. Uh, discrepancy between this and, and parental aspirations, uh, sometimes that differs. So it also adds a bit to the, to the, to the, the complexity of the situation when you have to start and align you know, people's aspirations, expectations, but also knowing what would be probably the most profitable for so sorry for that very long answer 
No, absolutely. That makes complete sense. And, you know, what you brought to light, Sebastian, was that it's so complex um, to have, you know, to to teach and to work, teach, plan. Uh, and I have your children in a bilingual environment. And it also um, stretches that, uh, you know, all the all the people who are involved, it stretches their efforts in personalizing the learning for this diverse set of students that they are working with. Um, so, uh, and, and very related to this topic is what age uh, is a good age uh, or is there even a good age to start? Like, how, does age matter? And uh, if there was a, you know, a, if you had to choose what would be the most suitable age to start um, a child in a bilingual environment. Eowyn, I will start with you if you would, you know, and you could give us a more research-based perspective on this as well. Okay, so the answer to this one is always surprising to most people who are outside the field. But if you look at the research on Canadian French immersion, which goes back decades, we have three models of French immersion in Canada. Early immersion, which starts at five years old, delayed immersion, which starts at 10 years old, and late immersion, which starts at 12. And so children in early immersion go through the vast majority of their education in French with some, you know, with a, you know, English as a subject and some subjects in English and secondary. Children who are in delayed immersion start in, um, towards the end of primary school, and children who are in late start at the beginning of secondary school. And when you look at ultimate attainment in French across all of those three groups, their proficiency across all four skills is statistically similar, all of those three groups. The only difference that is statistically significant across those three groups is about accent. The children who start in early immersion are more likely to have what we would consider a native speaker French accent than the children in delayed or late. Um, and I'd like to qualify that by saying an accent is not a sign of proficiency. An accent is just the way you pronounce, pronounce certain things. And so there's no actual benefit to having a native speaker accent. And it's also not a guarantee. You could start at five years old and still end up speaking French exactly like an English speaker would if they started learning later. And so when you look at that research, the compelling answer is there is no right time. It's about what's the best fit for any particular child, but that younger children learn languages more slowly than older children. So it will take them a longer time to become proficient. So what's really key in making the decision for any particular child is how well will their home language be supported in that process. And so in the Canadian immersion context, the children are, you know, the vast majority of them, certainly from the early research, all of them are English speaking, living in English speaking communities, English speaking families. So their English continues to develop at an age appropriate rate while they're learning French at school. And they are all learning French together. And so their rate of progress is similar to each other. And so that is a particularly rich environment for bilingualism to develop because you have two high status languages. The home language is fully supported. The school language is fully supported. Where it becomes a little more um, difficult to presume that earlier is better is when children are put into bilingual programs that do not support their home language development. So this is something that's of, you know, of increasing interest in international education. I'm working with more and more schools that are developing bilingual programs because of the market demand 
So for example, uh, you know, German English bilingual programs in Switzerland. And if children are going to come into those at three or four years old, not speaking German or English, that's a far more difficult situation to nurture effectively because they're learning two languages at the same time, but also because there's no support for their home language. And so the age issue is not actually about what age is it best to learn another language. It's about how well are we supporting the home language development alongside the acquisition of the new language. And if we can do that well, then earlier is fine. But if we can't do that well, then we need to think more carefully about delaying onset until the home language is fully, de fully developed, because there is no damage to their ultimate proficiency, if you will, by starting them slightly later. So that was also, yeah, that was also and a long answer. No, that, that made complete sense. And that's a dilemma I know we face as teachers where we know our t our parents want their children to learn now two different languages. So obviously they're not getting enough support in the mother language, uh, in, in their mother tongue. Uh, they're only speaking it at home and learning a little bit in school, like how you mentioned at the Swiss school. So how, how do you think, uh, um, what would your do you have some tips on how teachers can leverage translanguaging or any other tools um, in these difficult situations where the child is learning two new languages at this young age simultaneously? So I think that there are some things that teachers can do, but there's um, more that parents need to do and some things that schools need to do. Uh, so it's a, it's a really complex question, but uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, a child's home language needs to be con continually developing as they're developing new languages. And so that's the conversations with parents about what it means to have their child being educated in a language that is not their own and what they need to be doing at home to ensure that home language continues to develop robustly. We can engage with multilingual practices like, pedag uh, like pedagogical translanguaging to support home language use in the classroom. So you mentioned earlier, the French teacher and the English teacher come together to um, you know, front load some vocabulary and concepts across the two languages for children. And so the next step then is to bring in the children's own languages for that process as well. So we're having not a bilingual environment, but a multilingual environment. So if you have a child who is much stronger in Mandarin and understands how to tell the time in Mandarin, you get them to explore that concept and, and show how they can do it. And then you show them how to do it in English and then you show them how to do it in French. And so it's the integration uh, uh, into the classroom experiences of the home languages that brings value to the child, but also value to their learning of the other languages as well. Yeah, um, you know, in my class, usually I, I, I will ask children um, if, I, if there's an important instruction, which I don't want anybody to miss. And so I'll ask people to translate it in French and Chinese, because that's those are the languages in our community, English, French and Chinese. And I think I'm making a note of doing that for um, academic purposes as well. Um, so I, I definitely uh, am going to look more into how to leverage translanguaging uh, within my classroom. And I think a lot of, I think I, the more you co-teach, the more you can do that. And I think that's another thing I guess schools can encourage um, teachers to do. Sebastian, do you have any 
any tips and tricks that have worked in your schools in terms of uh, working in these difficult circumstances, which you were mentioning, how complex uh, our systems are where children are learning three languages, two of them are completely new for them, or at least they are not spoken at home. Yes, yes, Jaya. I, I can probably uh, uh, share with you s some of the observations uh, uh, that, that, I, that I made in terms of, I would say, student uh, um, enjoyment and, and well-being within the class and within the schools where there was no particular monopoly of a language over the other ones. Uh, and mm -hmm. students were confident about being who they were and, and, you know, bringing in a, you know, their background, their languages from home and that we were making sure there was space for them. Um, when uh, uh, there are particular experiences uh, that, that are done and there's one, one particular uh, activity uh, that I did in, in some of the schools uh, uh, I worked in, which I found really interesting, uh, which is called the flower of, of languages. Uh, and basically, students are invited. Uh, in, you can do that even in the earlier years. Uh, little little kids are invited to uh, to draw and paint or color a flower, and they color each and every petal of their flower of with a particular color, which represents a person. Uh, someone they have a strong relationship with. So obviously, you know, the parents, uh, siblings, the teacher, some neighbors, uh, some friends. Uh, so a color represents, uh, a petal represents one particular uh, person speaking the language or group of persons. And uh, then they decide to color this petal by a particular uh, color with the color code that's been shared by the teacher. And a color basically represents a language. And... Uh, uh, I, I share you this example because it was always, always been a great experience to see that we were inviting children, you know, as early as three, four, five-year-olds to reflect on uh, who uh, was part of their environment and what languages they were. And with the teachers, we realized that we had some, we had some little kids, you know, who were speaking, you know, Thai or uh, Swahili uh, at home and we had no idea about. And it was great for them to be able to uh, share that with their class and their teachers and uh, to be able to reflect on that and, and share it with the rest of the, uh, of the class. And uh, it was a great eye opener. Uh, and it has been every time we've been doing this activity with the colleagues because we get to know our students better uh, we get to reflect on who they actually are and their level of, of mastery of language as a whole. Uh, but it also gives space and uh, 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 symbolic symbolically it's very strong because uh, at the end of the activity, we basically, you know, cut out those flowers and, and put them on, 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 uh, on, on, on stems. And, and even at a school, we actually planted a garden with them all. And we had like all those colors and all those flowers, all of them with the picture of the child in the middle. And we saw the language diversity that, were, that was represented at the school. And I think it was a very strong message because every time you do an activity like this, it says, yes, we are in a particular bilingual environment. In my case, it's always mostly been, you know, French and English. 
but uh, there's more to this, you know, there are more languages and we have to give them space because those kids, you know, uh, obviously they're, they're, they're involved in, in interactions in, in, in those two languages in bilingual environments at school, but they usually have some more languages, you know, the home language, as Ewin said, are extremely important. And uh, I think a first step to do is just to acknowledge that they are here and that they are, they are part of the, uh, they're a strong part of the identity of the children. And as I said, it's a very big, you know, eye opener for the, for the staff, for the colleagues uh, and for the community as a whole. So we, when we can do something uh, great, you know, like a, 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 a great exhibition, it also shows, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the strength uh, uh, and the, the, the richness of the, of the, of the fabric of, of a school. And it's in the end, it means, you know, it's there. So we have to take, we, 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 we can't ignore it. So what do we do with it? So then we can start thinking about, you know, planning, you know, particular activities of translanguaging as we have been discussing, you know, is there. So how can we take advantage of that and, uh, uh, and make sure that uh, don't, we don't just acknowledge it, but uh, we use that in our teaching strategies uh, and, and, and make sure that it helps, you know, uh, build the, the, the kids, you know, sense of, of identity and, and, and self-confidence in them being, you know, multilingual. Absolutely. I think that's so important to uh, value um, all the home languages um, that we have in our schools. Um, and I think that can that can be applied. This is a great activity that can be done in any school, in any country, because it's, you know, world is truly becoming a village and we have uh, so many um, uh, different uh, multilingual speakers uh, and learners in our classrooms. Um, I know, Elvin, you have to go in a little bit. So I have two more questions that I'm hoping you'll be able to address uh, before you have to go. Um, for your daughters, um, there's a school... Uh, a school... Uh, the theater show. Sorry. It's musical theater. <laughs> okay. All right. And how old is she? She is 14. Okay. Oh, well, all right. You must be excited. So a um, couple of questions. One is we are going to do our fact or myth uh, in a myth in a bit. But before that, um, how helpful is technology? And, you know, we've talked about how complex uh, bilingual environments can be and personalizing learning becomes really important. And uh, I feel technology can have a good big part in um, in helping teachers personalize uh, education to differentiate, to scaffold, uh, you know, to apply the principles of universal, uh, uh, you know, design of learning, um, that kind of thing. So anything, Eowyn, that you've uh, found schools doing and Sebastian that you found uh, useful in your school um, that uh, in terms of using technology that kind of supports uh, the bilingualism or multilingualism of children? So I think at its most basic, um, we need to recognize that technology is useful for helping children to communicate. And so if you imagine, you know, the, the situation of a four-year-old who is dropped into a school where they don't speak the language um, and they can't understand anybody, nobody can understand them, that's, that's innately very stressful for children. They are not sponges, even though we like to think of them that way. Um, and so using um, interpretation tools like Google Translate has speaker buttons for a lot of languages so the child can speak into it in their language and then it can come out in the language of the teacher. 
um, can be just a way to include children and for them to feel like they are a part of the class, but also just for their well-being so that they know that they can communicate. Um, there are schools that are doing this to a high level of efficiency. The International School of The Hague has been using Google speaker buttons with incoming learners for several years now. And what you see in the classroom is these children are fully engaged and supported. For example, they've got their picture board and they're telling their story in Chinese through Google speaker buttons. There's their peers are hearing it come out in English. And it's not always perfect. We recognize that. But it's better for that child to have the experience of being able to tell their story, even if it's imperfectly, than to not be included at all. And so there's a kind of a functional reason why we engage with technology. Beyond that, children can continue to learn in and through their own languages if they are literate in them by using technology. So for example, if you are having students research I don't know uh, what was one I did with your school actually last year, the outcomes of COP26. You could have students researching what the media said about that global meeting in different languages, and then you report back as a, as a whole to the class um, what, you know, what you're learning from different media perspectives. And that's really useful also to just diversify our curriculum. If we are only learning through a single lens of English curriculum or, or, or French curriculum, we are not telling the stories of people in other parts of the world. We're not telling the stories of knowledge from different perspectives. And so we can use technology just to diversify our curriculum and bring in the, you know, the viewpoints, the voices, the stories of our children who speak other languages. Absolutely. And I feel like you're busting myth after myth. Children are not sponges. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not what I've been told. They um, are definitely not sponges. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I think we, 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 we adults want to believe that. And the other thing that you just said, um, you know, and that using that Google button, the speaker, and I know when I grew up in so I, I grew up in India and I went to a convent school where we were fined if we spoke Hindi, which, is, which was my home language. So I'm, I'm myself um, bilingual. And uh, the, the whole concept was that you throw children in the water and they learn to swim. So you're not supposed to. And here in Taiwan, I know in local schools, um, and, I, and I know that's the reality in many different parts of Asia, many different parts of the world where when children are exposed to a new language they are supposed to sink or swim like you you're not supposed to let them use the home language because it's like more like crutches and you want them to just uh so it's very interesting um you know that uh we are being more you know more cognizant of the well-being of the child and we are more be being more cognizant of the research um, and it, it's really, it really sounds inane now that we did that, but I know it still happens. There are still schools who operate on the model of uh, not using the mother tongue and not leveraging translanguaging or using the mother tongue to, um, to help children um, learn a new language. Um, and the other myth you already busted is early is not better. <laughs> So, um, so here are more. Uh, are you ready, both of you? Um, we're gonna. I, I have three different statements, and uh, we can. I'm just gonna say them, and I'll I'll, I'll invite you to uh, react on that. So, statement one: 
To become bilingual, a student has to be equally fluent with native or near native level fluency in both the target languages. Eowyn, would you like to take Absolutely that one? Not. Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. So what's the truth then? So the idea of that mythical balanced bilingual who is perfectly the same in both languages is indeed a myth. In fact, the bilingual brain is very complex and we learn to do things in a language because we're exposed to the language for that context and we need it for that purpose. And so when we look at parts of the world that are highly bilingual, for example, South Africa, everybody speaks many, many languages. Most people speak you know, four or five at a minimum. They don't use those languages to do the same things. So if we were to measure their proficiency in each of them, we would not say, you know, under that definition that they are truly bilingual. But the, at, the, at the bottom of that myth is the fact that that perspective measures the success of the bilingual against a monolingual. And a bilingual brain is not the same as a monolingual brain. So I speak English, French and Dutch. And whenever I am talking... There are influences of French into my English. There are influences of Dutch into my French. Our brains connect those languages. And so we can't actually separate out and measure and expect that a bilingual will be the same as a monolingual because their, their, their brain is just far more dynamic in terms of the languages it has and the languages and it under, that it understands and accepts. And so you may meet people for, well, you know, India is another good example of this. You'll have one language that you speak with your grandparents on your mother's side. You may have another that you speak with your grandparents on your father's side. You might go to school um, you know, when you're young in Hindi and when you're older in English. And so you don't use those languages equally and for the same things, but you still have all of those languages as a part of your linguistic repertoire. Sorry, that's a bit of a high horse for me. No, I love that. I love that. So I can bargain in night markets in Taiwan and I can talk to taxi drivers. So, but I can't like maybe talk about the share market or, or those kind of things. So I, but I could still consider myself um, um, kind of. You can add Chinese to your linguistic repertoire because you can use yeah. it to do the things you need to do. And that's, that's a great skill. There's no need for you to learn to talk about the stock market because you don't need to. Exactly. Wow. Right okay. Now, that now. makes me feel, feel better. Yeah. At least. Yeah. Yeah. I can manage with English with that. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, the next one is bilingualism in early childhood may hamper or hinder linguistic and cognitive development. Um, so Sebastian, would you like to take that? Um, I guess you opened the mic for me, so I'll try and answer this one. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, yes, uh, unfortunately, uh, it has to be taken, I think, very cautiously, because uh, I've, I've, I've had the experience of, of, of kids, basically, who, to go back to one of the discussions we had earlier on today during uh, uh, that pop uh, kids who, because of the school context, were completely cut off from uh, their uh, original uh, mother tongue, uh, had difficulties and uh, uh, there's some schools where you see kids who you know end up at the age of like five six seven sometimes eight who uh, don't have a, a decent level of fluency in neither of the languages they've been exposed to since the earlier years and uh, th these are students who are uh, in, in difficulty and uh, unfortunately these are very rare but they sometimes based on my experience again but I'd be happy to have Ewin's uh, opinion on that 
And these are sometimes based on, on, on uh, uh, aligning uh, negative factors. So basically, uh, um, I would say uh, early bilingual education uh, and language offered by the school that basically make no sense given the child's uh, uh, family uh, uh, language profile, but also some families that tend to sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, reject, you know, their own uh, uh, home language uh, in a way. So basically, young children sometimes can evolve in completely artificial uh, language environments that don't really make sense to them uh, with no time or not enough opportunities to create those situations, as they were mentioned, uh, that make those languages relevant and important. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, um, I know as adults, we kind of... of Languages would be good, but it might not always be. Yeah, sorry, I uh, I thought we were done. But yes, I agree with you, Sebastian, because um, if, and it also is a very individual thing, some children might really thrive in a multilingual environment or a bilingual environment. But for some children, it might just be too much. And we see that um, in our practice. Um, so yeah, I think, and also it depends on how it is done, I guess, how, how the school and the parents and the whole, all the stakeholders, um, they work together, uh, for, um, for, uh, the, the education of the child, but I'm very keen to hear Eowyn, what do you think does bilingual, uh, education in early childhood, could it hamper linguistic and cognitive development? Yeah, in, uh, in fact, yes, it can. And I think that, you know, Sebastian made a lot of really good points. It's about that development of the home language. If it's interrupted, children can only build on a strong foundation. And so, uh, you know, if you take, for example, I say a Spanish and Polish speaking child being dropped into a French English program, if neither their French or their, Span or their, uh, their Spanish or their Polish are well-developed or well-supported as they go through, you now have a child who's functioning across four languages, none of which are really well-developed. And so you can't continue your cognitive development in that circumstance. And so we really need to make sure that at, at all times, every child has one language that is age-appropriate and that they can use for learning because with, without that basis of one age appropriate language, we're trying to build new languages onto a, a weak foundation. And so we do see children who not only don't thrive, but suffer from negative impacts from not having their home language supported. It's, it's very often children from immigrant communities where they're, you know, they're born into another community language and their parents are told to only speak the community language with them at school. Um, and so the parents or the children themselves stop wanting to use and develop their home language. Uh, we used to have, going back to the earlier talk about sociolinguistics, we used to use the term semilingualism to describe this concept. We don't use it anymore because it's actually a really negative word, but I think it helps conceptualize that idea of if we've got a patchwork of different bits of things we can do in different languages, we need to be able to bring that together so that if somebody's trying to explain mathematics to us, we have the cognitive development to root that mathematical concept in. And so it is in the early years, much more important to pay attention to language development in bilingual situations. 
And that's one of the reasons why those, going back to the Canadian research, children who start in, in immersion when they are 10 or 12, their cognitive development has already happened in their own language. Their own language is well-developed, so we're building on a strong foundation and they learn much more quickly. And that's why they catch up because they've got that strong foundation. And so if we're starting with young learners, we need to remember strong foundation in one language to an age appropriate level at all times. Yeah, and I think when you have busted the third myth, I was going to say, and I'll just read it out loud, but I think uh, you know, the audience and I definitely know the answer. So the third myth or the third fact or myth, the third statement is the older a student, the more difficult it is for them to build proficiency in two languages simultaneously. So I'm guessing the answer to that, Eowyn, would be um, no, it is not more difficult. In fact, if they have a strong uh, first language, then in fact, it's easier for them to build proficiency in the second language. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, if we, if we get the, if we get the first language right, or the first and second language right, we could continue building on um, with as many other languages. Um, but if we don't, continue the development in the first or first and second if the child is bilingual from birth then we run the risk of of interrupted development and so those children who start in immersion schools for example in the netherlands they have all of these bilingual schools that start in secondary school um, and everybody knows that you know kind of globally the dutch are renowned for how well they speak english so they're obviously doing fine absolutely fine not starting to speak they don't start to teach English in most schools until the end of primary and English immersion starts in secondary when they're 12 to 13 years old. And so there are lots of models that show that that absolutely does work. Um, it's just not recognized because we still buy into the earlier is better because of accent. Yeah, but I, I think one of the reasons this myth, one of the things it stems from is because adults find it so hard to learn a new language. Um, uh, I think that could be a reason we have started to believe that the older you are, the harder it is. And I think neuroplasticity and that kind of thing comes into play as well, which we kind of disregard. And we just think that age is the thing that matters. We also need to remember that adults don't have the same amount of time and attention to spend learning a language. As adults, mm -hmm. if we're trying to learn a new language, it's while we're at the shops trying to feed our family or it's on <laughs> Thursday nights after work um, uh, when we know we have to do the cleaning and the laundry when we get home. Adults don't have the same amount of time and space and are not taught in the same ways. And so we don't actually know what's the difference between how adults are expected to engage with language learning around a busy life and with teaching that doesn't necessarily meet their needs versus what is actually just age effect. Yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. Thanks for clearing that up. I know when I hear that, I know what to say now. <laughs> All right, that was, I know I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that you need to go and, you know, attend your daughter's recital. So good luck uh, with that. Thank you very and, much for uh, having me. Thank you so much, Eowyn. This was amazing. Um, have a really great day. happy to have you. You too. And bye-bye. Sebastian, I would love for you to hang on for just a little bit more. And no what, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I am going to turn on the adverts. Uh, so we have our sponsored messages now and the news and the tech tip in just a bit. And we will continue our conversation with Sebastian Claire Jolt on 
bilingualism. So stay on. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Colin's Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out! Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. According to the United Nations Children's Fund, schools across 23 countries are still partially or fully closed due to COVID, affecting 405 million pupils. Some schools that have reopened have reported that some vulnerable children, especially girls, have not returned. UNICEF Executive Director Catherine Russell says children are the hidden casualties of the pandemic. In March 2020, 150 countries around the world completely shut their schools, with partial closures in a further 10. 
Two years later, 19 still have some of their schools closed. In a further four, the Philippines, Honduras, Solomon Islands and Vanuatu in the South Pacific, at least 70% remain shut. The proportion UNICEF categorise as full closure. Ms Russell told BBC News, we're seeing children go back who were reading before, who now can't read, who were doing numbers before, who now can't do that. Some children, because their families were so impoverished, were moved into the workforce. Girls also get moved into early marriage, and that's a terrible fate. Across Sub-Saharan Africa, reading, writing and math skills were lowest even before the pandemic. When schools returned in Uganda in January this year, about one in 10 pupils failed to return. In Northern Ireland, Dr. Graham Galt, director of the National Association of Head Teachers, has voiced his concerns following the release of provisional budgets for individual schools. He said, the indicative financial allocations to schools announced today make harrowing reading for all of our school leaders. With a decade of decimated budgets for schools behind us and the prospect of a further shortfall of three quarters of a billion pounds over the next three years, it is simply impossible for many of our schools to maintain basic services for our children without already enormous deficits spiralling further out of control. One factor that will deepen the financial crisis dramatically is that COVID-related costs, including for substitute teachers, will no longer be covered by additional funding. Schools will be expected to cover such costs themselves. This is a huge expense and will plunge some schools into an unprecedented level of crisis. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk VPN. For those of you thinking, why is Steve talking about an underwear fashion faux pas? A VPN is a virtual private network, and knowing a little bit about them might make you realise you actually need one. What is it? Well, in a nutshell, a VPN changes how internet data is transmitted from a device. It allows the user to be more hidden. I know what you're thinking. I'm no cyber criminal. Why do I want to conceal my data? Well, let's look at three things a VPN can do for you. I'm going to use a phone as an example, but all of these can be applied to any device you can put on the internet. Do you use public networks? A public network may be the Wi-Fi on the bus or train, a local coffee shop or fast food restaurant, any connection that isn't your home. Transmitting data on these networks can potentially allow your data to be intercepted by third parties. Having a VPN allows you to encrypt your data from your device rather than depending on the network you're connecting to. So, when surfing the web while enjoying a burger and fries, you can be confident if you're being intercepted, the data will be useless to the interceptor. The next is shopping online. When connecting to an online shop, some stores use your location and unique device ID to target you. If you're returning to look at a product, the likelihood is you're going to buy it. Knowing this, some stores use clever algorithms to increase the price to maximize their profit. With a VPN, you can 
mask this data so the price you see is the initial price. The third is some streaming services are blocked by internet providers or unavailable from outside of certain countries. If you're using a VPN, you can choose where to set your location to allow you to see the content you wish to stream. I've not looked at individual providers. Some are free, some are paid for. If you're unsure, find a friend who's using one, ask them about it and use the same one as them to begin with. Then you get free tech support. Make sure you know the terms of service. You don't want the VPN you're using keeping your data as that would defeat the object in the first place. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. And we are back. That was news, tech tip, and messages from our adverts. And we still have Sebastian here with us. We were fortunate to have Eowyn, uh, who called in from the UK. Uh, she's an expert in bilingual education. Uh, Sebastian is, um, is a leader in uh, who has worked in different French-English bilingual schools. And we are talking to him about his experiences and what he has learned and that he can share with us about bilingual teaching and learning. Hi, Sebastian. Still here? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Jaya. Perfect. So we have a couple more questions to go. And yep. the first one is what kind of learner, because we know uh, bilingual learners are typically uh, learners who have a home language and they are learning um, uh, at school in a different language. And a lot of times, uh, or sometimes it can even be two different languages, that new languages that they're learning simultaneously and that makes them multilingual learners. Uh, so what kind of profile can schools develop to make sure that these children succeed um, in in learning all the languages and in thriving in them i, I think uh, really the uh, uh, what i've i've tried to to do as 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 a, as a school leader is really speaking very bluntly to parents about what their job is going to be if they have their child in a bilingual program uh, that teaches in two languages that are not spoken at home. And I tell parents that really we expect a huge commitment on their part. So interestingly, parents tell me, oh, okay, so does that mean that I'm going to have to speak French or English to my child? Does that mean I'm going to need to have a tutor or things like this? Uh, but my what I always tell parents is what we want is your child to be happy and to develop and to do that. Uh, just please make sure you do everything possible so uh, that the language you speak at home is still there and alive and, and, and strong. And uh, the more that language will be uh, there and supported at home, the, the better the, the child and our student is going to have chances to uh, develop uh, uh, happily, you know, in those uh, extra two languages that are spoken and, and taught at school. So 
I think that's the, the important thing uh, to make sure that we have parents on board and they really truly understand that uh, in our case, uh, we're going to help the child develop their French and their English and to develop, you know, uh, cognitively, uh, socially, uh, uh, physiologically and all, but uh, we're going to need their support to make sure that the language they speak at home is still going to be uh, uh, part of the, of the process. Um, and then in terms of the actual profile of, of the students, uh, it's more, um, I would say, making sure that we have the right families on board. So families... Uh, that have understood, you know, what commitment, you know, it means, it means uh, 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 on their part, and and what kind of a of a school and a journey it's going to be for that child. So obviously, that's easy to say when you work in an international school or in an independent school. Uh, when you're in a public school setting, you know, you can't sort of like select your students. Um, but even if you you don't do that, uh, because I've also taught, you know, uh, uh, when I was in Australia, that the, the school that we I worked at was was a public school. But we were really taking some time to uh, have conversations with parents. I'll tell them, you are totally entitled to have your child in our school, uh, in our program. But just please make sure that you understand uh, the commitment on your part so that your child can thrive. And I think that can be a little bit um, contrary to what parents expect. Because when, when, when school would ask them for support, they would... Uh, a lot of parents think that, oh, we need to speak in English if that is the uh, target language at school and the home language is different. Whereas I think what we want them to do is completely the opposite. We want them to use the mother tongue so that that is strengthened and we can use that in the school uh, as a translanguaging tool to uh, for them to better learn uh, their second language. And of course, that concern for well-being is really, really important too, as you said. Um, so I feel um, these are some really positive changes that are happening in bilingual education where all different languages are being valued and the home language is specifically being, um, uh, being really uh, given a central role. Um, and I know you are, uh, you, you are an, a, a primary school leader uh, primarily, but uh, a lot of these learners, the learners that we work with in the primary school, um, they go, to, go on to secondary and then they go on to study in colleges, uh, which is their uh, language, second or third language that they have acquired at school. And so what can we do in the primary to help these students succeed um, in later years in the secondary and um, in college, I know that's thinking a bit far, but what has your experience been when you help the CM2 children, for example, in a French school, which is year six, UK level, to transition to the secondary? I, in general, I, I would say uh, we see that some there are some skills that students need uh, to have or some attitudes to learning that are necessary for them to thrive at secondary. Uh, you know, uh, in intrinsic motivation, uh, uh, you know, eagerness to learn, natural curiosity, uh, autonomy are extremely important for a child to be able to thrive. You know, in a school setting particularly in secondary, where we know sometimes things are a little more, I would say, dry and less sometimes project-based and sometimes a bit less fun. 
it is true. It's usually there's usually a gap between primary and secondary. So, in a secondary environment, uh, it's uh, students that do well are usually those that are, are very uh, uh, they want to learn. So uh, I think that's the most important. And obviously, uh, beyond that, you know, they need, you know, uh, I would say, you know, sound foundations uh, in particular in terms of, of literacy uh, that will help them uh, thrive in that secondary school setting. Uh, beyond the secondary school, uh, as you mentioned, university, and I would say even beyond that, you know, in, in, the, in the world of, uh, uh, of jobs out there, uh, we know that there is other sets of skills that are extremely important, uh, which are interestingly very much explored in primary school settings, and not as much as they should at secondary. You know, uh, uh, you know, oral fluency, uh, uh, being articulate, uh, being able to uh, uh, also uh, uh, debate and have strong oral skills are something which are very very important. Uh, and uh, in most, in all the, 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 the primary schools I worked out, uh, that was the case. We're taking students there, even though, you know, the, the writing elements of education are obviously very much explored and taught and, and learned by the kids. Uh, RSE is something very, very important. Um, traditionally, secondary is a bit more oriented to paper, even though things are changing. But um, we know that these are very important things to, to work on, you know, or at an early age uh, so that's you know students are self-confident are very good orators uh, and uh, yeah and can you know speak confidently and, and, and fluently absolutely um i agree you know those oral skills are really really important to build and i think in primary that's a good time to build them and also what you mentioned the attitude towards learning because uh, learning a second or third language which is not your home language is inherently challenging and for children to develop those positive attitudes um, are in the beginning of their education is so, so important. Um, and I think uh, students have so much to gain from bilingual education as well. Um, they are more mentally flexible. They have better intercultural skills. Um, they are more global minded. Uh, if we see, you know, uh, their success in universities and beyond that, like you mentioned, in life and in communities and in jobs, um, I think they do definitely have those immense benefits as well, even though, um, you know, it, it can be a bit challenging for them to acquire those new languages. Um, so, yeah, so to, uh, moving on just to our last question here. What do you think are the challenges for bilingual education? And I know as an admin, you, you, you face you have to bear the brunt of a lot of them, uh, but um, but in, all, in terms of, you know, uh, for children, for parents, for teachers, uh, what do you think are the biggest challenges for bilingual education um, in terms of uh, the day-to-day -day teaching, but also in terms of the future trends? I think a, a big challenge, and then I'm, I'm going to remove my uh, school leader hat and, and put on my parent <laughs> hat, <laughs> is that uh, what is great is that we see there's a strong appetite for this type of approach, not just for the language uh, uh, benefits for the students, but also, as you've just mentioned, you know, the national mindedness which is very important nowadays for many families because you know more and more parents feel their 
you know, citizens of the world, and uh, um, truly so, they 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 see that you know their child being uh, immersed at school in a multilingual environment. That means they would they would benefit from that you know immersion in in, in the United Nations of Education in a way. So uh, there's a strong appetite, and obviously uh, uh, you know education is a market, and there's plenty of schools out there and people who who obviously want to make money. Uh, who see that uh, uh, there is a market uh, and there's more and more and more schools offering, you know, this this sort of a, uh, uh, of endeavor for families and students. And I've seen in the past fifteen years, you know, some 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 schools developing, you know, on on true grounds, on very right grounds, and 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 others just, you know, basically giving a quick answer to a, a market trend. Uh, and I think the challenge out there is for families to to actually f- find and and have the the, the ways to uh, decipher uh, what would be uh, uh, you know a, a, a school that would uh, deliver you know positive and strong uh, a bilingual education and others that are just there just because it's it's fashionable. So I, I think that's a big challenge from a parents parents' perspective and, and and from a teaching and, and, and learning perspective, I think one of the big challenges as well is that there's a, a huge amount of representations uh, amongst parents and we've talked about them, uh, we've, we've spoken about them a, a lot today. You know, those myths that uh, we try to debunk, uh, Ewin, uh, you, Jayan and myself. Uh, some yeah. parents have some clear representations that they hold on very strongly to, and, and teachers as well, and uh, and they are usually derived from what we experience uh, as children. Uh, sometimes at school, uh, when I started learning English, you know, I started at the end of twelve, and I started English as I started uh, Spanish, and I was lucky to have a fantastic English teacher that really gave me a passion for the English language. Why my uh, uh, Spanish teacher was just very bad. So uh, I would I could tell uh, yes I've had the, 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 the both experiences. But some ch- some parents they they, they just they've just had the experience of a, of a bad language teacher. So they think that you know learning uh, a foreign language you know uh, at, at a late age is not good. So there are those ex- those experiences uh, that sometimes create those myths. Uh, and those myths are very strong and not very easy to uh, 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 to, to debug, uh, uh, unfortunately. And that's not just fam- families, but it's also for for staff sometimes, who, who, teachers who, who lack uh, uh, that, uh, that 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 experience and that background knowledge, and also the fact that uh, research there is research. Uh, we know there is some. Uh, uh, there is some 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 sound uh, um, finding in research in terms of bilingual education, uh, but these are social sciences, you know, and, and uh, uh, these are not hard, hard science. And we see uh, through uh, the the growing uh, amount of research available that there are actually some elements that contradict each other, uh, just because every single school is different. Uh, every single human person language background is different. It's not surprising that sometimes we have some uh, piece of evidence or 
uh, elements based on research that actually contradict each other. And it's also uh, difficult, uh, I would say, uh, for us as educators, but also for parents out there to actually, uh, you know, find, uh, uh, find our way and, and find our grounds and, and move forward. Even though we nowadays, and you've heard that through Erwin, who's, who's, who's a real uh, 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 specialist and really up to date on, on the matter, we know, we have some knowledge of good practice uh, and what tends not to be so good for the kids. But I would say these are some of the of the challenges, you know, uh, a growing landscape of, of uh, uh, bilingual education, a strong appetite for families, uh, and uh, more and more need for teachers to to deliver, you know, this type of education. But uh, more loss of stakeholders who have, unfortunately, some representations that are sometimes difficult to deconstruct. And even though research is uh, is moving forward. Uh, it's it's research in so, social sciences, so it's not just as black and white. Wow, that is that is really really eye opening. What he said, a few things. Uh, definitely, we need to lean more towards the global mindedness and all the different um, benefits of bilingual education, rather than following market trends or. Uh, having, uh, you know, using, uh, and also as adults, we have to be very careful as teachers and parents of, uh, we have to be very careful of not uh, using our own experiences and uh, decide what is best for our children based on those. We do need to update our parenting and teaching repertoires based on research and best practices, just like you mentioned. So I'm just summarizing what you said. And uh, yeah, this is so true. And I think by uh, that's actually it's a heartening trend. Um, uh, what you said, the growing landscape and the strong appetite for bilingual and multilingual environments in education. I think that's amazing for me. That's like a ticket to international mindedness, which is what we really, really need right now. We really need to, uh, you know, the, the, the borders of nations, we need to really see them as more flexible and see ourselves more as citizens of worlds of the of a world of us of one world so um i think this this can be a huge contributor um having a bilingual multilingual education does open up children's minds uh, and makes them more empathetic so it's been an amazing conversation, uh, Sebastian, with you and with Eowyn. We have debunked a lot of myths. Children are not sponges, uh, people. Early is not better, always. Um, and we do need to keep children's well-being in mind uh, when we are providing bilingual education. It's not sink or swim. We do need to personalize learning for them. We need to uh, be... Uh, updating ourselves with research and not use outdated modes of teaching and parenting when it comes to that. So amazing discussion. Thank you, Sebastian, for being here. Thank you very much, Jaya, for the invitation and a uh, great job. Uh, it was a, a first for me to not only participate, but discover the show. So you have one <laughs> new subscriber. <laughs> Fantastic. And I especially appreciate your time because I know we are on spring break here in Taipei and you're up on a holiday uh, with no your worries. family. So, well, um, have a lovely rest of the spring break and I'll see you in two weeks. Thank you, Jaya. Bye-bye. Thank you, guys. Bye.
All right, that was it for today's show, everyone. I apologize again for starting an hour late, but that's you know that's our world. I did not realize that um, uh, there has been uh, equivalent of daylight saving time. So I am in fact one hour closer um, in terms of time to UK now. So. Um, Um, I'm sorry about that. It did throw off, throw us off a little, but I'm really glad that we could have our whole 90 minutes of our chat about bilingualism. Hopefully you learned something about it. If you have something to add, something, uh, if you have some feedback, if you are a teacher at, or a parent who works with bilingual or multilingual children, do drop me a message on Twitter or tweet me uh, or um, uh, tag me on your tweet. Uh, I am miss.hiranandani on Twitter um, and have a lovely week. Bye-bye. Listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.